Well, there was once a man by the name of John Bradford. Uh, John Bradford lived, I believe, um, I'm actually kind of spacing on the timeline, I believe it was the 16th century, 1500s. But he said something once that we don't know for sure that he said it, but all of our most reliable documents point back to him. Uh, He uttered a phrase one time that has sort of trickled down to us today and has become a relatively common cliche, something you've probably heard someone say, maybe in a book you've read or just a friend said it in passing. And what happened, the, the context was John Bradford was in the public square with a group of fellow believers and they saw a, a procession, a line of men who were being shackled and who were being carried to the gallows for their execution. So here you have in the public square, you have free people, people who have been following the law, and then you have criminals being escorted to their death. Right? And these were capital crimes, so they were most likely heinous offenses. So you have wicked, wicked men being carried to their death in the middle of a crowd of what seemingly are law-abiding righteous men. So you can imagine maybe the disdain you might have for those men as you see these wicked, vile criminals being marched to their rightful death. But Bradford was not filled with disdain. Rather, as he looked upon that line of men, he uttered the phrase, there but for the grace of God goes John Bradford. And that phrase has carried its way into our day and age, only we don't put John Bradford's name in there, but you might hear someone say, there but for the grace of God go I. Now what was he saying when he said that? He was making the claim, an audacious claim, that there's really no difference between me and those men except for one thing, the grace of God. The mercy of God, the only thing that has kept me from that procession is the goodness and mercy of God. I'm always blessed when the Lord sort of treats me with bringing an entire worship service together so well, and he's done that today. The music and and, and our, our call and response all ties so well into today's sermon because what we're going to be looking at is what John Bradford said, the mentality of his quotation is really the theme of our text today. If you would turn to Titus chapter 3, we are going to look at the grace and mercy of God. The grace and mercy of God and what that means for us. Turn to Titus chapter 3. We're going to find Paul is yet again, the way he's, he's really going to finish the letter with all of the themes that we've seen throughout the pastoral epistles, a call to godliness, a call to obedience, and the rightful place of the gospel in there. And we are going to be looking at Titus chapter 3. We're going to start right at the beginning, and we will, excuse me, read through verse 8. If you have your Bibles with you, I would encourage you to follow along, for these are the very words of God. Paul writes to Titus chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, and slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another." But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, 
by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Paul begins in verse 1, sort of jumping back to what he was doing in chapter 2, which is a call to godliness, right? He, he jumps right back into it, and he continues to egg T- Titus and his people on to godliness, right? He begins to say, remind them, so he's saying that Titus is to utilize his pastoral office to remind his church of all of the godly ways in which Paul Jesus Christ, through Paul, has commanded Christians to live. So he he jumps right back into this call to godliness, and and he specifies a certain way in which we are to be godly in verse 1, and that is, he says, to remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient and ready for every good work. He really focuses right now on our relationship primarily to our government, Uh, It was known among the Cretan people that they were disorderly and disobedient. They were not good citizens, so he he likely had that in mind. But generally speaking, I don't think we need the context of the Cretan background to understand how important this is and to see, to be reminded of, quite honestly, how difficult this can be for anyone living in any day and age. Uh, Just start off by confessing some of my own sins. I spent yesterday failing to do my taxes and I only got about a third of the way through before I got frustrated. It's difficult when you move to a new state. There's just a lot that goes into it after that. And I just remember feeling, looking at what I owe and doing, and just, I just remember, I just hated our government. I just hated them. Submission to rulers is not easy. Yet, here we have Paul calling us to obey our authorities. And, 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 and make no mistake about it, this is a huge theme in the New Testament. The New Testament addresses this in multiple places and in other places at more length. We're not going to turn there for today, but if you're interested, you can mark down Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. Romans 13, 1 through 5. And you can also write down 1 Peter chapter 2, 11 through 17. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 17. Those passages go into an even greater detail, calling us as Christians to obey our governing authorities. We are to submit to them. We are to be obedient. This is extremely important. What what that tells us is a lot of things. Number one, it tells us that Christians are not anarchists. It is not biblical to think government is bad from a Christian perspective. Government is not bad. Civil government is a blessing from God. It's a good thing. The problem is that civil government throughout human history has so often been corrupted and it's so often been abused that we don't tend to think of it as a good thing because every example we have of government, it's always bad news. It's always the government doing something bad. The government is just so inept so often that we don't tend to think of it as a good thing. But, but if, if we take our anecdotal personal experiences and we just look at it philosophically, government is good. The Bible is not anti-government. The Bible is not anti-civil government. Government is a good thing. And we as Christians are to sort of lead the way in our culture in showing people what it means to be a good citizen. We are to earn the love and respect of our governing authorities. 
We are to obey them and to submit to them, to humble ourselves, to lower our pride and obey the laws, even the ones we don't like, even the ones we disagree with. We are called to obey our governments. Christians should strive to be the best citizens of their nations. Now, uh, this obviously is qualified in Scripture, right? Uh, For example, we see in Acts chapter 5, verses 28 through 29, where Peter and the other apostles are commanded uh, to no longer preach the gospel because it's causing so much civil and religious unrest. So they are commanded, they are giving a command, you are no longer free to preach the gospel. The problem is, is Christ gave them a direct commission to preach the gospel. So what do you do when the government tells you one thing and Jesus tells you another? Well, Peter responds, we must obey God rather than men. So this does not mean that Christians are to have such an undying allegiance to their government that we will obey them no matter what they say, no matter where they try to take us. So it is qualified. We, we uphold God and his word far above our government authorities. But, you know, it would take way too much time to, to come up with every possible hypothetical and try to answer it here. Well, what about when the government does this? Well, what about when the government does this? You can find books on Christian ethics and the chapter on government and Christian obedience will usually be bigger than most other books. So we don't have the time here to, to, to bring up every possible hypothetical, but Paul gives us a general principle and so let me give the general principle to you. If the second you hear obey your government, the first thing you start coming up with in your head are loopholes and what about this, I would argue you might have a problem. Generally speaking, the vast majority of our days, the government is not asking us to disobey Christ. They might be asking us to do foolish things. They might be asking us to do impractical things. They might be asking us to do things that we don't want to do. But that is not the same thing as disobeying God's word. The vast majority of time, Christians ought to lean into obedience rather than try to find ways to justify their disobedience. Paul and Peter go out of their way to say that one of the most important strengths of our testimony is the way we treat governments, especially the ones that don't deserve it. For example, when Peter addresses in 1 Peter chapter 2, if you read through all of 1 Peter, he's addressing a persecuted people. He's addressing a people and he says, There's, you're experiencing persecution and even worse persecution is coming. So he's dealing with a government that has begun and is about to vociferously attack and harm Christians. And Peter's response to an evil, wicked government that's trying to kill Christians, Peter's response is not activism. It's not anarchy. It's submission. It's obedience. Honor the emperor, he says. Especially when our governments are wicked and vile, the strength of our testimony is increased when we humble ourselves and submit to the institutions that God has put over us. Christians are to be submissive to their authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. As a matter of fact, this was extremely important in the early church because... In the second century, when uh, first and second century is when Christian persecution really ramped up. And one of the things that people were trying to accuse the Christians of in order to justify their persecution was that Christians were, were, were causing civil unrest. 
That Christians, because of their belief in King Jesus, because they believe that Jesus is king, that means they, honest, they, 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 they obviously then have no respect for the governor. They have no respect for the emperor. They can't submit to an emperor if they're submitting to Jesus. They can't obey an emperor if they're obeying Jesus. So the whole shtick, the whole lie about Christians was that they are seeking to overthrow the government. They are seeking to collapse this institution and to deny your authority. And that lie gave people comfortability in persecuting the Christians. And so we have in the second century what are called the uh, Christian apologists. These were Christians who defended the Christian faith. But part of what they did was not just defend the Christian faith the way we think of, right? By saying, here's why our faith is true and here's why your faith is wrong. That's typical apologetics. That's what we do today. But the vast bulk, well, maybe not the vast bulk, but a large portion of the apologists in the first and second century were trying to prove and convince people that we're not a threat to our government, that we are not calling people to overthrow government and be disobedient. That was simply not what they were called to. I have a book on first century Christianity called Christianity, or second century Christianity. And here's what the author says in this. Uh, speaking about um, this famous document we have called the Epistle to Diognetus. He says this, in addition to defending the truth of Christianity, the author also seeks to convince Diognetus that Christians are no threat to the empire. He presents Christians as ordinary, Quote, Christians are no different than other people in terms of their country, language, or customs. And he adds, Christians are not subversive, but instead are obedient to the laws that have been made. Yet despite their innocence, the author laments that Christians are still mistreated. Christians do good and are punished as evil. When they are punished, they rejoice as those who have been made alive. When they are attacked by the Jews as foreigners or persecuted by the Greeks... Those who hate them cannot explain the cause of their enmity. So what's his point? Christians should obey the laws. That is the Christian apologetic. We are here to obey our governors. And that doesn't mean that persecution won't come. That doesn't mean we'll be treated fairly. But what it does mean is that when we are still persecuted, even in light of our obedience and submission and good works, then these people will have no justification for their hatred. And it will become plain that they don't really hate us. It's Jesus that they hate. They will have no excuse. So will obedience cause the government to treat you well? No, of course not. But it will heap coals on their head as they will not be able to explain their hatred for you. Christians historically have never been anti-government. Christians submit and honor the emperor. They submit to and honor the government above them. But then Paul transitions in verse 1, not just to treating government officials well, but specifically in verse 2, he then broadens it. We should treat everyone equally well, right? Speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people, not just government officials. Everyone deserves perfect courtesy. And I think if we're all being honest with ourselves... I think it's easy to affirm that, right? If you've been a Christian for a long time, you're not going to go around, no, we should be hateful to people. It's easy to affirm that. But that's easier said than done. To show perfect courtesy to all people, to obey unjust governments. Because here's the problem. Quite frankly, throughout human history, it doesn't matter when or where you've lived, I can, obviously there's exceptions to this, but generally speaking, even in the Old Testament, even in the Old Testament, generally speaking, your government doesn't deserve your submission. They don't deserve it. And here's the, what's equally true. All people, your neighbors, your coworkers, 
They don't deserve your courtesy. And that's the way we feel a lot of the times. Why should I treat them well? Do you know what they've done to me? Oh, you mean the person who's spent years gossiping about me behind my back and telling lies about me? I should treat that person with perfect courtesy? They haven't earned perfect courtesy. They don't deserve perfect courtesy. And you know what Paul would say? You're right. They don't. Your neighbor, I don't care who your neighbor is. Let me tell you something about their neighbor. Your neighbor. Your neighbor does not deserve your courtesy. Your neighbor does not deserve your love. Your neighbor does not deserve help or gentleness or affection. They don't deserve it. Your government doesn't deserve it. Our government does not deserve anything from us other than hostility and anger. That's all they deserve. But this gets us to really the whole point of the passage. The whole point of our sermon today is that Paul is ultimately not going to call us, he doesn't call us to treat people on the basis of what they deserve. Because I've got important news for all of us today. Your neighbor doesn't deserve perfect courtesy, gentleness, love. Your government doesn't deserve perfect courtesy, gentleness, and love. But here's the problem. You don't deserve perfect courtesy, gentleness, or love. I don't deserve it either. And that's ultimately going to be the problem. That none of us deserve these things. But that is why Paul does not base the way we treat people on what they have earned. He doesn't base the way we treat people on what they deserve. What does he base it on? Well, look at verse 3. Treat people with perfect courtesy, have perfect courtesy toward all people. Why? For we ourselves are once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. So there's kind of a two-step process to why we treat people well. And the first step is we remember what John Bradford said. That was me. That should be me. When we look at anybody who mistreats us or does something foolish or sinful or wicked and these emotions rage up inside of us, how could someone believe that? How could someone do that? Those are the questions that come up in our heads. We're so angered by our culture, by our government, by our unbelieving neighbors all around us. We're so angered at what's happening to our country. How could people believe this is good for us? How could they be so foolish? But what does Paul say? If it wasn't for the grace of God, you'd be leading that parade. You were once just as foolish as they were. Notice Paul here really holds no punches. He describes natural man outside of Christ in the most debased ways. He, he covers the entire personhood. He, he describes us here as being totally depraved. We're depraved in our thoughts, right? He calls us foolish. The Bible loves to use the word foolish to describe people who don't have spiritual enlightenment, who don't understand the spiritual truths of God. They, these people are fools. You're foolish. Your thinking is depraved outside of Christ, but it's not just your mind, your actions, your behavior. You are what? Disobedient. You don't obey. You don't submit. You don't follow laws. You disobey God. You disobey parent. You disobey government. You're a disobedient person. Autonomous, self-law. You do what you want. You do what you think is right. Your, 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 your behavior is wicked. Your thoughts are wicked. And even your disposition, your emotions, your passions 
He says that we were once foolish, disobedient, and led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our day in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. A full corruption of the inner man. We're envy. We want what other people have. We're never satisfied with what we have. We hate people because of it. We live in anger and we are slaves to whatever passions and pleasures suit us. And this is what we see. This is, I think, a pretty accurate description of what's happening in our country today. This is an accurate description of what's happening in all the godlessness we see today. But Paul says you should not mistreat those people because you used to be those people. You once were them. I would challenge you to remember that every time those feelings of anger rush up inside you with what you're seeing on the news or what, the way your neighbor treated you, whether your coworker treated you, the things you're hearing about God from your unbelieving neighbors, when those feelings rush up inside of you, I want you to try your hardest to remember, I used to be that. I should still be that way. So that brings us to part two. Why aren't you then? If if anything, this gives us more room to boast. This gives us more room to mistreat our neighbor because we've seen the light and they haven't. We all were once foolish, but now I'm not. That's why Paul makes sure to say there's a reason you're not foolish and depraved anymore and it has nothing to do with you. Look at what he says in verse four. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What Paul does is remind us that the reason you are no longer like those people, the reason you are no longer like everyone around you, is because of God, not because of you. It is because of the grace and mercy and loving kindness of God. That is the only thing that separates you from them. The only thing. Notice how he describes our salvation. Not only does he explicitly say in verse 5 that it is not done by works of righteousness on our end. But he goes to show the entire Trinitarian nature of salvation. That there's, there's a lot of moving parts to your salvation. You just don't happen to be one of them. Why are you saved? Because God the Father is good and is full of loving kindness and is full of mercy towards you. It's because of God the Father's mercy and love for you. That's why you've been saved. That's why you're different. Because of grace. How have you been saved? Well, it's because of the Holy Spirit whom God the Father has given us who has washed us and renewed us. We saw in, during our, our call and response today, we read in our call and response this, these Old Testament prophecies of one day being washed, of one day being sprinkled clean. And that's what all of the Old Testament water ceremonies and our one New Testament water ceremony, they all point to this spiritual reality of purification, You've been spiritually washed. You've been cleansed. The Holy Spirit has washed you, cleansed you. He has not only purified you, he has made you new. You're forgiven and you're transformed. Why? Because of God the Father's love and mercy for you, because of the Spirit's regeneration in you. And he says all of this doesn't come but through Jesus Christ, right? Verse 6, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, beckoning us back to the cross, the forgiveness of sins accomplished there. And that is why we are, as verse 7, justified by what? Works? 
grace. What's different about you in the unbelieving world? What makes you different? Why don't you think the way they think? Why don't you behave the way they behave? Why don't you love the things they love? Is it because you're better? Smarter? It's because of God the Father's love and mercy for you. It's because of the Holy Spirit's regeneration and renewal. It's because of Jesus' sacrifice on your behalf. You are different because of a five-letter word we call grace. And that's why John Bradford was right to say, there but for the grace of God go I. We need to remember that every time we are tempted to hate the unbelievers in our lives. When you're tempted to hate your coworker who probably has rightly mistreated you, if it's not for God's grace, I would be just like him. When you're tempted to hate the other political party for all the foolishness and nonsense that they're trying to push through our country, when you're tempted to hate those on the other end of your political spectrum, I want you to remember, if it wasn't for the grace of God, I would be on that side. This tempers our emotions. It humbles us to be reminded that the only difference between us and them is a five-letter word we call grace. You were saved by grace. You were justified by grace. You were renewed by the Holy Spirit, and it has nothing to do with the works of righteousness you have done. That is why we treat people well. That is why our governments and the people around us, that is why we give them perfect courtesy, not because they've earned it. Rather, if, if you want a thesis, so to speak, this is sort of the thesis here, we treat others not according to what they deserve, but according to how we have been treated by God. The basis upon which we treat our neighbor, we treat our government officials, the basis upon which is not putting them on a scale and evaluating how much of my courtesy and respect they've earned. And the reason we don't do that is because we wake up every morning and we come to church every Sunday grateful that God didn't do that to us. We are so grateful that when we stand before the throne of God one day, he's not going to put our works, our good works and our bad works on a scale and judge us according to what we've earned. None of us wants that. And if you do want that, you don't understand what the Bible says about you. God has not treated us according to what we have deserved. According to the text, it is not by works done in righteousness. He has actually given us what we don't deserve. And so this is Paul's logic. God has been gracious to me even when I was foolish. God has been gracious to me even when I was disobedient. God has been gracious to me even when I was enslaved to various passions. So why would I turn around and then treat my neighbor according to their foolishness, disobedience, and passions? That's not how God treated me, and I'm thankful for it. You see, we treat people not according to what they deserve, not according to what they've earned, but according to how we have been treated by God. And God treated you by showing you grace and mercy and love when you were least deserving. The Bible says, even when we were sinners, yet Christ Jesus died for us. He didn't, he didn't die for righteous people. He didn't rescue righteous people. He showed love and mercy and sacrifice to sinners. So that changes the way we treat the sinners in our lives. We show love and mercy and courtesy and kindness and submission to people not because they deserve it. Not because we deserve it. One of my favorite quotes, I won't get it exactly right, but Charles Spurgeon once said, don't be upset when people speak ill of you. Don't, don't be bothered when people speak ill of you because I promise you're far worse than they said. <laughs> Even their gossip and their evil 
You know who we should honestly respond when someone speaks ill of us? We say, yeah, you don't know the half of it. We don't deserve it. They don't deserve it. But that's not how God operates, so it's not how we operate. We treat people according to how God has treated us. A couple uh, last quick points, though. But in order to properly understand this text rightly, though, we have to avoid one pitfall. Uh, I one time saw a bumper sticker, and I I, I agreed with where the bumper sticker was going, but I don't agree with, with what it actually said. And the bumper sticker said something along the lines of, you and I are no different, there's no difference between you and me other than forgiveness, right? Like, we're all the same, I just happen to be forgiven. And it would be easy to, 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 to get that that's what I'm saying in this text, and that's what Paul's saying in this text, but it's quite, quite literally very not what Paul's saying in this text. The difference between us and the unbelievers is not just forgiveness. That's part of it, but it's not just that. And here's why I say that. Notice how Paul doesn't say in verse 3, for we are also ourselves foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions. Paul speaks of this way towards you in the past tense, for we once were. And then even as he goes on to describe salvation, he does so in a way that emphasizes more than just forgiveness of sins, but actual transformation. He says in verse 5, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, that's purification, and renewal. Salvation is a transformation process, not just a forgiveness process. It, God doesn't just forgive you. He makes you new. We see uh, this, this is described everywhere in Scripture as being born again. It's described as being a new creation. It's described as being set on the spirit, no longer set on the flesh. We are, we are new creatures. So, so, so what Paul is not saying is that all of us are exactly the same. You just happen to be forgiven. Paul is recognizing we are not the same. Christians, are, ready for this? this, this, this is, if, if I were famous, this is what people would put on Twitter and, and, and we would get attacked by the culture. So thank God that I'm not famous because it would be taken out of context. But I'm going to say something that's really going to shock you. Christians are better people than non-Christians. You are better than your neighbor. You are. You're a better person. If, if the Holy Spirit of God truly lives in you, you're better. That, that's what the text says. They currently are foolish, disobedient, and you used to be. So there should be a difference between Christians and non-Christians. Make no mistake about it. We are not just living in a world of, the, of equal rank sin and some of those people happen to be forgiven. You see, the Spirit of God is not given to us just to purify us. It's to renew us. And as, as Romans 8 says, to conform us to the image of Christ. So we are more than just forgiven. We're transformed. We're made new. We are different. The whole letter is an admonition that the Cretan Christians don't look or act like the Cretan non-Christians. That's what the whole letter is about. Don't be like the rest of Crete. Be sanctified. Be unique. Be different. Be set apart. So Christians are supposed to be, at least in principle, better people. But the difference, the reason why this is not an arrogant thing to say, the reason why I am not calling us to pride, the reason I'm not calling us to boast, and to be haughty and to walk around with our righteousness flags showing everyone how much better we are than them is because of how we got here. And Paul goes out of his way to say, yeah, we are different, but why are we different? Grace. That's it. 
Not because of works done in righteousness. Not because you saved yourself. But a Trinitarian action of God transformed you and saved you and made you new. So that's why you have no room to boast even though you are different. So Christians should be living righteous lives. And that's why he, how does he conclude in verse 8? Does he say, so just continue on in your sin, but be thankful that you're forgiven? No, he's saying this saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. He wants us to focus on being good people, to devote ourselves to good works and to see that there is a difference between non-Christian and Christian lifestyles, but that in the middle of that friction... There is never any room for pride or haughtiness or arrogance to enter because we remember all the time, there go I, but by the grace of God. The only thing that separates us from our unbelieving neighbors is grace. And then just the last thing I want to say in in conclusion is Paul does sort of level the playing field at least as it pertains to before Christ comes and saves you. Right? Everyone's in the same boat then. And so here's why that's good news. Your salvation is proof that anyone can be saved. If God could save you, he can save anybody. Right? Because the text lumps us into the same boat in verse 3. So here's who you used to be before Christ saved you. You were foolish, you were disobedient, and you were enslaved to sinful passions and pleasures. That's who you were before Christ saved you. But then Christ saved you and now you're not. So who are we to look at somebody else and say, well, he's too far gone. I mean, he's foolish and he's disobedient and he is enslaved to his sin. He is too far gone. The Bible says that's where you were. We were all in that same boat. So if God can rescue you from that boat, who can't he rescue from that boat? So in the midst of this, this sermon is a humbling message that first and foremost reminds us of God's goodness and grace to us. That God is so good and so loving and so full of kindness that he would save us even though we don't deserve it. And second, this sermon humbles us because it reminds us that we are not, even though we do live better lives than non-Christians, we are not in, in that to be boastful or arrogant or haughty because of that. It humbles us. But the third thing it does is it should excite us and encourage us because it is a reminder that all of the unbelievers in our lives, whether they're in the government, whether they're your coworker, your family members, your neighbors, they can all be pulled from the same ship that you were once drowning in. This should make us exalt the goodness of God. This should humble our pride and this should excite us for the loved ones in our lives that we are oftentimes convinced there's no hope for. If God can save you, he can save anyone. So I, I want us, as we end, to, I want you to not just spend time today, but throughout the week, think, think of who are some of the people in your life that maybe you have removed your hand of courtesy toward. People who have maybe mistreated you, that you are just hardened toward. You're not interested in reconciliation. You're not interested in love. You're not interested in showing them respect and courtesy because quite frankly, they don't deserve it. I'm sure I know for me, I I have people in my mind, people that I feel harmed me. And even when I just see a picture of them online, I get these awful feelings inside of me. The Bible says God deserved to have those same awful feelings when he looked at me. 
But he chose mercy. He chose love. He chose reconciliation. So who are some of those people that you've determined they won't get my respect, they won't get my reconciliation? And I would call you today to remember, is that how you want God to treat you? And if so, why treat them that way? And then on the flip side, not only should we change our hearts toward them, but begin to pray for their salvation. Be praying throughout the week for the people you are most hardened to, if they're not already believers, be praying that God would save them. And remember, he can, he saved you. This is a sermon that calls us to love our enemies, to love our neighbors, to pray for our enemies, to pray for their salvation, to pray for our government. Not because they deserve it, but because God has treated us with grace and mercy.